0: Section 8 of Select Sermons of Jonathan Edwards. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Lane. Select Sermons of Jonathan Edwards. Section 8: God's Sovereignty in the Salvation of Men. Part 1. God's Sovereignty in the Salvation of Men. A Sermon by Jonathan Edwards Romans 9, 18 Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. The Apostle, in the beginning of this chapter, expresses his great concern and sorrow of heart for the nation of the Jews, who were rejected of God. This leads him to observe the difference which God made by election between some of the Jews and others and between the bulk of that people and the Christian Gentiles. In speaking of this, he enters into a more minute discussion of the sovereignty of God in electing some to eternal life and rejecting others than is found in any other part of the Bible. In the course of which, he quotes several passages from the Old Testament, confirming and illustrating this doctrine. In the ninth verse, he refers us to what God said to Abraham, showing his election of Isaac before Ishmael. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. Then to what God had said to Rebekah, showing his election of Jacob before Esau. The elder shall serve the younger. In the thirteenth verse, to a passage from Malachi, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. In the fifteenth verse, to what God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And the verse preceding the text to what God says to Pharaoh, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. In what the apostle says in the text, he seems to have respect especially to the two last-sided passages to what God said to Moses in the fifteenth verse, and to what he said to Pharaoh in the verse immediately preceding. God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. To this the apostle refers in the former part of the text, and we know how often it is said of Pharaoh that God hardened his heart. And to this the apostle seems to have respect in the latter part of the text, and whom he will, he hardeneth we may observe in the text, 1. God's Different Dealing with Men He hath mercy on some, and hardeneth others. When God is here spoken of as hardening some of the children of men, it is not to be understood that God by any positive efficiency hardens any man's heart. There is no positive act in God as though He put forth any power to harden the heart. To suppose any such thing would be to make God the immediate author of sin. God is said to harden men in two ways, by withholding the powerful influences of His Spirit, without which their hearts will remain hardened, and grow harder and harder. In this sense He hardens them, as He leaves them to hardness. And again, by ordering those things in His providence, which, through the abuse of their corruption, become the occasion of their hardening. Thus God sends his word and ordinances to men, which, by their abuse, prove an occasion of their hardening. So the apostle said, That he was unto some a savour of death unto death. So God is represented as sending Isaiah on this errand to make the hearts of the people fat, and to make their ears heavy, and to shut their eyes, Lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed isaiah six ten was in itself of a contrary tendency to make them better, but their abuse of it rendered it an occasion of their hardening, as God is here said to harden men, so he is said to put a lying spirit in the mouth of the false prophets, second chronicles eighteen twenty two that is he suffered a lying spirit to enter into them, and thus he is said to have bid Shimei curse David. 2 Samuel 16.10 Not that he properly commanded him, for it is contrary to God's commands. God expressly forbids cursing the ruler of the people. Exodus 22.28 But he suffered corruption at that time, so to work in Shimei, and ordered that occasion of stirring it up as a manifestation of his displeasure against David. 2. The foundation of his different dealing with mankind, viz., his sovereign will and pleasure. He hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. This does not imply merely that God never shows mercy or denies it against his will, or that he is always willing to do it when he does it. A willing subject or servant, when he obeys his Lord's commands, may never do anything against his will, nothing but what he can do cheerfully and with delight. And yet he cannot be said to do what he wills in the sense of the text. But the expression implies that it is God's mere will and sovereign pleasure which supremely orders this affair. It is the divine will without restraint, or constraint, or obligation. DOCTRINE God exercises His sovereignty in the eternal salvation of men. He not only is sovereign, and has a sovereign right to dispose and order in that affair, and He not only might proceed in a sovereign way if He would, and nobody could charge Him with exceeding His right, but He actually does so. He exercises the right which He has. In the following discourse, I propose to show 1. what. Is God's sovereignty? 2. What God's sovereignty in the salvation of men implies? 3. That God actually doth exercise His sovereignty in this matter? 4. The reasons for this exercise? 1. I would show what is God's sovereignty. The sovereignty of God is His absolute, independent right of disposing of all creatures according to his own pleasure. I will consider this definition by the parts of it. The will of God is called his mere pleasure. 1. In opposition to any constraint. Men may do things voluntarily, and yet there may be a degree of constraint. A man may be said to do a thing voluntarily, that is, he himself does it, and all things considered he may choose to do it, yet he may do it out of fear, and the thing in itself considered be irksome to him, and sorely against his inclination. When men do things thus, they cannot be said to do them according to their mere pleasure. 2. In opposition to its being under the will of another. A servant may fulfill his master's commands, and may do it willingly and cheerfully, and may delight to do his master's will, yet when he does so, he does not do it of his own mere pleasure. The saints do the will of God freely. They choose to do it. It is their meat and drink. Yet they do not do it of their mere pleasure and arbitrary will, because their will is under the direction of a superior will. 3. In Opposition to Any Proper Obligation A man may do a thing which he is obliged to do very freely, but he cannot be said to act from his own mere will and pleasure. He who acts from his own mere pleasure is at full liberty, but he who is under any proper obligation is not at liberty, but is bound. Now the sovereignty of God supposes that he has a right to dispose of all his creatures according to his mere pleasure in the sense explained. And his right is absolute and independent. Men may have a right to dispose of some things according to their pleasure, but their right is not absolute and unlimited. Men may be said to have a right to dispose of their own goods as they please, but their right is not absolute It has limits and bounds. They have a right to dispose of their own goods as they please, provided they do not do it contrary to the laws of the state to which they are subject, or contrary to the law of God. Men's right to dispose of their things as they will is not absolute, because it is not independent. They have not an independent right to what they have, but in some things depend on the community to which they belong, for the right they have and in everything depend on God. They receive all the right they have to anything from God. But the sovereignty of God imports that He has an absolute, and unlimited, and independent right of disposing of His creatures, as He will. I propose to inquire 2. What God's sovereignty in the salvation of men implies. In answer to this inquiry, I observe it implies that God can either bestow salvation on any of the children of men, or refuse it, without any prejudice to the glory of any of his attributes, except where he has been pleased to declare that he will or will not bestow it. It cannot be said absolutely, as the case now stands, that God can, without any prejudice to the honor of any of his attributes, bestow salvation on any of the children of men, or refuse it. Because concerning some, God has been pleased to declare either, that he will or that he will not bestow salvation on them, and thus to bind himself by his own promise. And concerning some, he has been pleased to declare that he never will bestow salvation on them, viz., those who have committed the sin against the Holy Ghost. Hence, as the case now stands, he is obliged. He cannot bestow salvation in one case, or refuse it in the other, without prejudice to the honor of his truth, But God exercised His sovereignty in making these declarations. God was not obliged to promise that He would save all who believe in Christ, nor was He obliged to declare that he who committed the sin against the Holy Ghost should never be forgiven. But it pleased Him so to declare. And had it not been so, that God had been pleased to oblige Himself in these cases, He might still have either bestowed salvation or refused it, without prejudice to any of His attributes if it would in itself be prejudicial to any of his attributes to bestow or refuse salvation, then God would not in that matter act as absolutely sovereign, because it then ceases to be a merely arbitrary thing. It ceases to be a matter of absolute liberty, and is become a matter of necessity or obligation. For God cannot do anything to the prejudice of any of his attributes, or contrary, to what is in itself excellent and glorious. Therefore, 1. God can, without prejudice to the glory of any of His attributes, bestow salvation on any of the children of men, except on those who have committed the sin against the Holy Ghost. The case was thus when man fell, and before God revealed His eternal purpose and plan for redeeming men by Jesus Christ. It was probably looked upon by the angels as a thing utterly inconsistent with God's attributes to save any of the children of men. It was utterly inconsistent with the honor of the divine attributes to save any one of the fallen children of men, as they were in themselves. It could not have been done had not God contrived a way consistent with the honor of His holiness, majesty, justice, and truth. But since God in the gospel has revealed that nothing is too hard for Him to do, nothing beyond the reach of his power, and wisdom, and sufficiency, and since Christ has wrought out the work of redemption, and fulfilled the law by obeying, there is none of mankind whom he may not save without any prejudice to any of his attributes, excepting those who have committed the sin against the Holy Ghost. And those he might have saved without going contrary to any of his attributes, had he not been pleased to declare that he would not It was not because he could not have saved them consistently with his justice, and consistently with his law, or because his attribute of mercy was not great enough, or the blood of Christ not sufficient to cleanse from that sin. But it has pleased him, for wise reasons, to declare that that sin shall never be forgiven in this world, or in the world to come, and so now it is contrary to God's truth to save such. But otherwise there is no sinner, let him be ever so great. But God can save him, without prejudice to any attribute. If he has been a murderer, adulterer, or perjurer, or idolater, or blasphemer, God may save him if he pleases, and in no respect injure his glory. Though persons have sinned long, have been obstinate, have committed heinous sins a thousand times, even till they have grown old in sin, and have sinned under great aggravations, Let the aggravations be what they may, if they have sinned under ever so great light, if they have been backsliders, and have sinned against ever so numerous and solemn warnings and strivings of the Spirit, and mercies of His common providence, though the danger of such is much greater than of other sinners, yet God can save them if He pleases, for the sake of Christ, without any prejudice to any of His attributes. He may have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He may have mercy on the greatest of sinners, if he pleases, and the glory of none of his attributes will be in the least sullied. Such is the sufficiency of the satisfaction and righteousness of Christ, that none of the divine attributes stand in the way of the salvation of any of them. Thus, the glory of any attribute did not at all suffer by Christ's saving some of his crucifers. 1. God may save any of them without prejudice to the honor of His holiness. God is an infinitely holy being. The heavens are not pure in His sight. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look on iniquity. And if God should in any way countenance sin, and should not give proper testimonies of His hatred of it, and displeasure at it, it would be a prejudice to the honor of His holiness but God can save the greatest sinner without giving the least countenance to sin. If He saves one who for a long time has stood out under the calls of the gospel, and has sinned under dreadful aggravations, if He saves one who against light has been a pirate or blasphemer, he may do it without giving any countenance to their wickedness, because his abhorrence of it and displeasure against it have been already sufficiently manifested in the sufferings of Christ. It was a sufficient testimony of God's abhorrence against even the greatest wickedness that Christ, the eternal Son of God, died for it. Nothing can show God's infinite abhorrence of any wickedness more than this. If the wicked man himself should be thrust into hell, and should endure the most extreme torments which are ever suffered there, it would not be a greater manifestation of God's abhorrence of it, than the sufferings of the Son of God for it. 2. God may save any of the children of men without prejudice to the honor of His majesty. If men have affronted God, and that ever so much, if they have cast ever so much contempt upon His authority, yet God can save them, if He pleases, and the honor of His majesty not suffer in the least, if God should save those who have affronted Him without satisfaction, the honor of His majesty would suffer. For when contempt is cast upon infinite majesty, its honor suffers, and the contempt leaves an obscurity upon the honor of the divine majesty, if the injury is not repaired. But the sufferings of Christ do fully repair the injury. Let the contempt be ever so great, yet if so honorable a person as Christ undertakes to be a mediator for the offender, and in the mediation suffer in his stead, it fully repairs the injury done to the majesty of heaven by the greatest sinner. 3. God may save any sinner whatsoever consistently with his justice. The justice of God requires the punishment of sin. God is the supreme judge of the world, and he is to judge the world according to the rules of justice. It is not the part of a judge to show favor to the person judged, but he is to determine according to a rule of justice, without departing to the right hand or left. God does not show mercy as a judge, but as a sovereign. And therefore, when mercy sought the salvation of sinners, the inquiry was how to make the exercise of the mercy of God as a sovereign and of his strict justice as a judge, agree together. And this is done by the sufferings of Christ, in which sin is punished fully, and justice answered. Christ suffered enough for the punishment of the sins of the greatest sinner that ever lived, so that God, when he judges, may act according to a rule of strict justice, and yet acquit the sinner if he be in Christ. Justice cannot require any more for any man's sins than those sufferings of one of the persons of the Trinity, which Christ suffered. Romans three, twenty-five and 26. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Christ. 4. God can save any sinner whatsoever, without any prejudice, to the honor of his truth. God passed his word that sin should be punished with death, which is to be understood not only of the first, but of the second death. God can save the greatest sinner consistently with his truth in this threatening. For sin is punished in the sufferings of Christ, inasmuch as he is our surety, and so is legally the same person, and sustained our guilt and in his sufferings bore our punishment. It may be objected that God said, If thou eatest, thou shalt die, as though the same person that sinned must suffer, and therefore why does not God's truth oblige him to that? I answer that the word, then, was not intended to be restrained to him that in his own person sinned. Adam probably understood that his posterity were included whether they sinned in their own person or not. If they sinned in Adam, their surety, those words, if thou eatest, meant if thou eatest in thyself or in thy surety. And therefore the latter words, thou shalt die, do also fairly allow of such a construction as, thou shalt die in thyself or in thy surety. Isaiah forty-two twenty-one. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. But 2. God may refuse salvation to any sinner whatsoever without prejudice to the honor of any of his attributes. There is no person whatever in a natural condition upon whom God may not refuse to bestow salvation without prejudice to any part of his glory. Let a natural person be wise or unwise, of a good or ill natural temper, of mean or honorable parentage, whether born of wicked or godly parents. Let him be a moral or immoral person, whatever good he may have done, however religious he has been, how many prayers soever he has made, and whatever pains he has taken that he may be saved, whatever concern and distress he may have for fear he shall be damned, or whatever circumstances he may be in, God can deny him salvation without the least disparagement to any of his perfections. His glory will not, in any instance, be the least obscured by it. 1. God may deny salvation to any natural person, without any injury to the honor of his righteousness. If he does so, there is no injustice nor unfairness in it. There is no natural man living, let his case be what it will, but God may deny him salvation and cast him down to hell, and yet not be chargeable with the least unrighteous or unfair dealing in any respect whatsoever. This is evident because they all have deserved hell. And it is no injustice for a proper judge to inflict on any man what he deserves. And as he has deserved condemnation, so he has never done anything to remove the liability, or to atone for the sin. He never has done anything whereby he has laid any obligation on God not to punish him as he deserved. 2. God may deny salvation to any unconverted person, whatever, without any prejudice to the honor of his goodness. Sinners are sometimes ready to flatter themselves that though it may not be contrary to the justice of God to condemn them, yet it will not consist with the glory of his mercy. They think it will be dishonorable to God's mercy to cast them into hell, and have no pity or compassion upon them. They think it will be very hard and severe, and not becoming a God of infinite grace and tender compassion. But God can deny salvation to any natural person without any disparagement to His mercy and goodness. That which is not contrary to God's justice is not contrary to His mercy. If damnation be justice then mercy may choose its own object. They mistake the nature of the mercy of God, who think that it is an attribute which in some cases is contrary to justice. Nay, God's mercy is illustrated by it, as in the twenty-third verse of the context, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. 3. It is in no way prejudicial to the honor of God's faithfulness, for God has in no way obliged himself to any natural man, by his word, to bestow salvation upon him. Men in a natural condition are not the children of promise, but lie open to the curse of the law, which would not be the case if they had any promise to lay hold of. End of section 8